first part of chapter one of the second volume of the life of reason this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by fredrik karlsson the life of reason by george santayana volume two reason in society chapter one love side note fluid existences have none but the ideal goals if man were a static or intelligible being such as angels are thought to be his life would have a single guiding interest under which all other interests would be subsumed his acts would explain themselves without looking beyond his given essence and his soul would be like a musical composition which once written out cannot grow different and once rendered can ask for nothing but at most to be rendered over again in truth however man is an animal a portion of the natural flux and the consequence is that his nature has a moving centre his functions an external reference and his ideal a true ideality what he strives to preserve in preserving himself is something which he never has been at any particular moment he maintains his equilibrium by motion his goal is in a sense beyond him since it is not his experience but a form which all experience ought to receive the inmost texture of his being is propulsive now, there is nothing more intimately bound up with his success than mobility and devotion to transcendent aims if there is a transitive function in knowledge and an unselfish purpose in love that is only because at bottom there is a self-reproductive flying essence in all existence if the equilibrium of man's being were stable he would need neither nutrition reproduction nor sense as it is sense must renew his ideas and guide his instincts otherwise than as their inner evolution would demand and regenerative processes must strive to repair beneath constant irreparable lapse of his substance his business is to create and remodel those organisms in which ideals are bred in order to have a soul to save he must perpetually form it anew he must so to speak earn his own living in this vital labour we may ask is nutrition or reproduction the deeper function or to put the corresponding moral question is the body or the state the primary good sidenote nutrition and reproduction if we view the situation from the individual side as self-consciousness might view it we may reply that nutrition is fundamental for if the body were not nourished every faculty would decay could nutrition only succeed and keep the body young reproduction would be unnecessary with its poor pretense at maintaining the mobile human form in a series of examples on the other hand 
If we view the matter from above, as science and philosophy should, we may say that nutrition is but germination of a pervasive sort, that the body is a tabernacle in which the transmissible human spirit is carried for a while, a shell for the immortal seed that dwells in it and has created it. This seed, however, for rational estimation, is merely a means to the existence and happiness of individuals. Transpersonal and continuous in its own fluid being, the potential grows personal in its ideal fulfillments. In other words, this potentiality is material, though called sometimes an idea, and has its only value in the particular creatures it may produce. Side note, priority of the latter. Reproduction is accordingly primary and more completely instrumental than nutrition is, since it serves a soul as yet non-existent, while nutrition is useful to a soul that already has some actuality. Reproduction initiates life and remains at life's core, a function without which no other in the end would be possible. It is more central, crucial, and representative than attrition, which is, in a way, peripheral only. It is a more typical and rudimentary act, marking the ideal's first victory over the universal flux, before any higher function than reproduction itself has accrued to the animal. To nourish an existing being is to presuppose a pause in generation, the nucleus, before it dissolves into other individuals, gathers about itself for its own glory certain temporal and personal faculties. It lives for itself, while in procreation it signs its own death warrant, makes its will, and institutes the heir. Side note: Love celebrates the initial triumph of form and is deeply ideal. This situation has its counterpart in feeling. Replenishment is a sort of delayed breathing, as if the animal had to hunt for air. It necessitates more activity than it contains. It engages external senses in its service and promotes intelligence. After securing a dumb satisfaction, or even in preparing it, it leaves the habits it employed free for observation and ideal exercise. Reproduction, on the contrary, depletes. It is an expense of spirit, a drag on physical and mental life. It entangles rather than liberates. It fuses the soul again into the impersonal blind flux. Yet, since it constitutes the primary and central triumph of life, it is in itself more ideal and generous than nutrition. It fascinates the will in an absolute fashion, and the pleasures it brings are largely spiritual. For though the instrumentalities of reproduction may seem gross and trivial from a conventional point of view, its essence is really ideal the perfect type, indeed, of ideality, since form and an identical life are therein sustained successfully by a more rhythmical flux of matter. It may seem fanciful, 
even if not unmeaning, to say that a man's soul more truly survives in his son's youth than in his own decrepitude. But this principle grows more obvious as we descend to simpler beings, in which individual life is less elaborated and has not entrenched itself in so many adventitious and somewhat permanent organs. In vegetables, soul and seed go forth together and leave nothing but a husk behind. In the human, individual love may seem a more incident of youth and a sentimental madness, but that episode, if we consider the race, is indispensable to the whole drama, and if we look to the order in which ideal interests have grown up and to their superpositions in moral experience, love will seem the truly primitive and initiatory passion. Consciousness, amused ordinarily by the most superficial processes, itself bears witness to the underlying claims of reproduction, and is drawn by it for a moment into life's central vortex. And love, while it betrays its deep roots by the imperative force it exerts and the silence it imposes on all current passions, betrays also its ideal mission by casting an altogether novel and poetic spell over the mind. Side note difficulty in describing love the conscious quality of this passion differs so much in various races and individuals and at various points in the same life that no account of it will ever satisfy everybody footnote a the wide uses of the english word love add to the difficulty i shall take the liberty of limiting the term here to imaginative passion to being in love excluding all other ways of loving it follows that love like its shadow jealousy will often be merely an ingredient in an actual state of feeling friendship and confidence with satisfaction at being liked in return will often be mingled with it we shall have to separate physiologically things which in consciousness exist undivided since a philosophic description is bound to be analytic and cannot render everything at once where a poet might conceive a new composite making it live a moralist must dissect the experience and rest in its external elements End footnote. poets and novelists never tire of depicting it anew but although the experience they tell of is fresh and unparalleled in every individual their rendering suffers on the whole from a great monotony love's gesture and symptoms are noted and unvarying its vocabulary is poor and worn even a poet therefore can give of love but a meagre expression while the philosopher who renounces dramatic representation is condemned to be avowedly inadequate love to the lover is a noble and immense inspiration to the naturalist it is a thin veil and prelude to the self-assertion of lust this opposition has prevented philosophers from doing justice to the subject two things need to be admitted by anyone who would not go wholly astray in such speculation one 
that love has an animal basis, the other that it has an ideal object. Since these two propositions have usually been thought contradictory, no writer has ventured to present more than half the truth, and that half out of its true relations. Side note. One-sided or inverted theories about it. Plato, who gave eloquent expression to the ideal burden of the passion and divined its political and cosmic message, passed over its natural history with a few mythical fancies. And Schopenhauer, into whose system of naturalistic treatment would have fitted so easily, allowed his metaphysics to carry him at this point into verbal inanities. While, of course, like all profane writers on the subject, he failed to appreciate the oracles which Plato had delivered. In popular feeling, where sentiment and observation must both make themselves felt somehow or other, the tendency is to imagine that love is an absolute, non-natural energy which, for some unknown reason or for none at all, lights upon particular persons and rests there eternally, as on its ultimate goal. In other words, it makes the origin of love divine, and its object natural, which is the exact opposite of the truth. If it were once seen, however, that every ideal expresses some natural function, and that no natural function is incapable in its free exercise of evolving some ideal and finding justification not in some collateral animal, but in an inherent operation like life or thought, which being transmissible in its form is also eternal, then the philosophy of love should not prove permanently barren. For love is a brilliant illustration of a principle everywhere discoverable, namely that human reason lives by turning the friction of material forces into the light of ideal goods. There can be no philosophic interest in disguising the animal basis of love, or in denying its spiritual sublimations, since all life is animal in its origin, and all spiritual in its possible fruits. End of chapter 1, part 1